When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, it's Mark Brown. I'm on vacation and have recorded this in advance, so instead of your regular Good Morning Birdland, there are going to be a few episodes talking about things that are not impacted by the current fortune of the Orioles. So however awesome or terrible it's gotten since I recorded this episode for you, on July the 19th, if the Orioles have gone on to trade for Lucas Giolito or David Robertson or Max Scherzer or Shohei Otani or absolutely no one at all, other than Shintaro Fujinami, which broke right as I was about to start recording this podcast, the mark of this recording knows nothing about it. I'm sorry. If you need to freak out, go to whocamdenchat.com and my staff will surely have you covered or whatever you want to know, or just have a space for you to freak out. So this is a Good Morning Birdland vacation special. And during this little special, I'm going to be looking back at Dan Duquette's fire sale trades of 2018, which were his ultimately futile attempt to preserve his job as the general manager beyond the end of that season. At the time of this recording, we're already past the five-year anniversary of the Manny Machado trade, by the time you listen to this, the Zach Britton trade anniversary will also have come and gone. You know, these were the seismic moves for the franchise that really officially kicked off the rebuilding era. So now that the Orioles are good again, and we can say that the rebuilding era has closed, how much difference did these trades really make? Now, if you've been following closely through the worst of the 2019 to 2021 depths of Orioles baseball, you already know the short answer. And it's okay if you already know the answer. I hope you will nonetheless listen on for the long answer here. So before we dig into the trades, I would like to zoom back out a little bit and think about kind of the path that led the Orioles onto that fire sale being inevitable. So knowing what we know now the party days of the Buck Showalter era of the Orioles were over the minute that Ubaldo Jimenez came out of the bullpen in the wildcard game in Toronto in 2016. That was as good as that group, that core of the Orioles was ever going to get again. 
there were people who uh, who were on Camden Chat, I remember, who wanted the Orioles to trade Britain that very same offseason. And I know I want to tell you, I still think that was loser thinking. I think that a good Orioles team needed to have Britain as the 2016 wildcard game where Buck, for reasons to this day no one knows, did not have Britain pitch. Like, you can't do the, we can't spend that much money on a closer routine and be a winner unless you really, really, really think that closer is about to regress. You just can't do it. And so, like, I, my main critique of Duquette has to do with the fact that he should have looked at the 2017 team in progress during the 2017 season and seen that it wasn't going to happen. Mistakes were made before the season even began, like re-signing Mark Trumbo after his good season in 2016 instead of just thanking him for all the dingers and replacing him with a player who played his basic same positions, Trey Mancini, or even then-Orioles minor leaguer Christian Walker, who never really got a chance with the Orioles, was dumped and has gone on to have a 10-plus war career with um, with the Arizona Diamondbacks. So, you know, that was one flaw for the Orioles. Poor evaluation of their own internal talent, leading them to make moves, not realizing they actually could have plugged a couple of these holes and not even to get too much into it, but of course they should have had the same realization about Chris Davis that they could have replaced uh, his production eventually. And yeah, but they were also bad at evaluating outside talent that they added to the team, such as trading for Wade Miley during the 2016 season, and then trading for Jeremy Hellickson during the 2017 season. Maybe get a little partial credit for Duquette trading for Tim Beckham, having him win an American League Player of the Week award having like three good weeks and then going into the tank pretty much from there. So, yeah, I mean, Dan Duquette, he should have traded Manny Machado, Zach Britton, and even Adam Jones, who didn't yet have 10 and 5 rights, I don't believe, in 2017 that July. Now, if one wants to be fair to Dan Duquette, one problem he faced is that the reason the 2017 team underachieved is in large part because it's players you might have thought of before the season as being most likely to be tradable, were either hurt or struggling. For instance, Chris Tillman's career absolutely evaporated, and that was probably due to the shoulder injury he suffered during the 2016 season, late in that season, or maybe it got worse heading into 2017. The Orioles couldn't have really expected that to happen, and once it was 2017 started and he clearly sucked, there was really no backup plan, which, you know, that's on Duquette for not having a backup plan. But nonetheless, there was no way to trade him. Zach Britton at that year missed two months of the season with a forearm injury, wasn't very good in July when he came back, so he wasn't going to have a whole lot of trade value then. And on July 20, the, July 31st, 2017, Manny Machado was only OPSing 753. It was a down year for him. Maybe Adam Jones might have had a little value as a veteran joining a young team or some such if the Orioles ate some money, but we'll never know. So it's much like we're never going to know what the Orioles could have done if they had decided to dismantle the team before the 2018 season because, like, they, they couldn't. They couldn't even trade Zach Britton, for instance, because Britton ruptured his Achilles in December of that year. So really, unless they struck absolutely fast and immediately punted on the 2018 season, 
when Machado still didn't have built up his value, etc. I guess, you know, Dan Duquette didn't have many choices other than go for it and hope for the best. And, you know, it ended up being that the best was he signed Andrew Kashner and Alex Cobb, and it didn't work out at all. So that brought us to 2018. And, you know, unless you've only discovered Orioles fandom since the 2019 season, you remember 2018. It was just a dour three-plus-month march to get to the trade deadline and the inevitable. I feel like it was clear the season was over as early as April 19th when the Orioles were 5-14, and 14, but it was absolutely definitely over that year by May the 8th after a seven-game losing streak sent the Orioles to an 8-27 and 27 record. That stunk. So, you know, by the time July finally arrived and it was trade season, you know, there were rumors of plenty of suitors. So for me, I, in my mind, I had my eyes go into the dollar signs thinking of the recent example from 2016 where the Yankees traded Eraldis Chapman to the Cubs and got back a top 20 prospect, Glaber Torres, in that trade, who is still to this day on the Yankees and helping the Yankees. I really thought that should be the Machado rental market. Maybe that was overly ambitious of me. Those sorts of rental trades, that was kind of a one-off, and that was not the um, ultimately sustainable value of those sorts of trades, it seemed. But so like for Camden Chat, I spent the weeks leading up to that trade looking at the top 10 or 15 prospects in every reported possible suitors system for Machado or Britain or whoever, because I was just sure that... They were going to get at least two of those guys from one team and maybe one from another. And I'd have a head start in knowing, you know, who those guys were going to be. So it was like, could the Orioles get Will Smith or Dustin May or Gavin Lux from the Dodgers? Could they get Corbin Burns from the Brewers? Could they get Jazrado Chisholm from the Arizona Diamondbacks? You know, I scoured the list. I really went over them. And the answer to all of those questions was no. They didn't get any of those guys because the trades arrived. And my reaction was, by and large, who the heck are these guys? And, you know, it's uh, with one or two exceptions at most, there was not much reason to ultimately get to know these guys. So, yeah, for Manny Machado, the full trade, Machado went to the Los Angeles Dodgers for outfielder Yusniel Diaz, pitcher Dean Kramer, infielder Ryland Bannon, pitcher Zach Pop, and infielder Bravik Valera. So that was four guys who you could call prospects, plus Valera, who was kind of a throw-in. And, you know, looking at that trade, you could immediately have a guess that the Orioles' strategy in that trade was to target players who were, other than Diaz, who had the hype of being a guy who got a $15.5 million bonus as um, a signing out of Cuba. And... So other than him, it looked like players that Orioles maybe targeted who were overachieving their pre-2018 scouting reputation with their 2018 performance. And I think maybe Duquette was hoping he could steal some guys who the hype hadn't hit yet. Um, so like the only top 100 prospect on, on the lists before after that trade was Diaz. And it now certainly looks like he mostly coasted um his reputation mostly coasted on his big signing bonus. Again, the $15.5 million, plus the Dodgers had to pay exactly that same amount as a luxury tax. And after that trade, I just vividly remember seeing on Rock Kubatko's blog on Masson, some scout said to Kubatko, he's better than anyone you've got right now. So 
In retrospect, that was either an idiotic utterance by someone who probably should have been fired or an extreme condemnation of the farm that existed for the Orioles at that time. Maybe it is the latter. I distinctly recall after even the 2018 fire sale trades, um, Keith Law, who's now at The Athletic, was then at ESPN. Even after that, he rated the Orioles 30th out of 30 in farm systems. And Orioles fans got really mad. Um, you know, as as we're learning um, in the rest of this podcast episode, actually the Orioles really didn't get very much for these fire sale trades. So, like, Diaz, he ultimately got exactly one plate appearance with the Orioles last year. That has been it. Ryland Bannon was already 22, but only in high A at the time of the trade, went on to play four games for the Orioles. They did not add Zach Pop to their 40-man roster when he became eligible because he was had just recently recovered from Tommy John surgery. I thought at the time that was a poor decision by Mike Elias, but Pop is no good for the Jays this year. It's kind of a wash as to whether they should have kept him or not. The one guy still with potential, Dean Kramer, has really turned into the headliner. And even calling him a headliner, I mean, his MLB career to date, he's got a 4.64 ERA. That's because he debuted with pretty bad results in 2021. He was much better last year, but those results are stepping back again in 2023, really getting hammered by homers. He does have some good outings under his belt. If you only look at the win-loss record, which you should never do, but if you nonetheless did, you might think, oh, well, he's got 10 wins. That's pretty good. But you know, for me, the aggregate numbers are what they are. Kramer, he's got a 4.80 ERA and FIP this season. I think he would be my guy to replace in the Orioles rotation if someone does get traded or has been traded before you listen to this. You know, I would like Kramer to be good. He seems fun. He has glorious hair, but none of those three things uh, are enough to make him good. That's just the way it goes. So like, my question for every one of these trades, the, the, the Machado one especially, but really all of them, like, did Duquette know that these returns probably sucked and that this was the best that he could do? Or did he actually ignore better offers he could have received largely because he had no idea how to evaluate players properly? Fans like us, we're never going to know, you know, um, at this, but at least I guess we can say at this point, now that a good Orioles team has returned, these questions are less haunting and less all-consuming. So there's that. I will be right back after a message from a Fans First Sports Network sponsor. All right, so let's talk the rest of the trades. Time moved on, and the Orioles then went on to trade closer Zach Britton to the Yankees for three pitchers, Dylan Tate, Cody Carroll, and Josh Rogers. At the time of the trade, Tate and Rogers were starting pitchers. Carroll was a reliever. Carroll ultimately had all of three games with the Orioles, he couldn't throw strikes, no value to any MLB team. Josh Rogers, he played eight games for the Orioles, wasn't good, needed Tommy John, no value to the Orioles. Tate, okay, a little bit of a possible success story. He was converted from a starter into a reliever basically as soon as Elias and company arrived. So Tate, well, he was bad in 2019, good in the short 2020 season, sort of decent if you squint in 2021, took a step forward last year and really was expected to be a key part of this year's bullpen. And instead he's been out all year with a forearm injury. He's had no command to speak of in rehab appearances. He's been shut down, really no path to coming back. So yeah, um, the Britain trade, I, him rupturing his Achilles, I think destroyed whatever potential there might've been 
for duplicating a Chapman trade return because it meant Britain was going to be two years removed from his 46 for 46 perfect save 2016 season. He was clearly not as good in his action in 2017. Command was more of a problem. And he had no time in 2018 to show a bounce back. So what the Orioles got was a poo-poo platter of older pitchers. And, you know, Tate never ends up pitching for a great Orioles team, which, you know, if the forearm thing is permanent, he never has command again, whatever, it's the trade is going to end up being a wash to the rebuild. Tate, uh, although he was the headliner, he was a twice-traded pitcher. Always beware the twice-traded pitcher. Also snuck in there was a trade of Brad Brock to Atlanta for international bonus money. I'm really only mentioning it for completest sake. Brock was having an off year that year in 2018. He got dealt for $250,000 of international bonus money that the Orioles did not even use. So there were two more trades that came down really to the final minutes before the deadline in that 2018 season. And these were trades that were made with players who had some team control beyond 2018. So one of them, the Orioles sent Jonathan Scope to the Milwaukee Brewers, and they received back infielder Jonathan VR, pitcher Luis Ortiz, and infield prospect Gene Carmona. And VR maybe was the best player received by in any of these trades. Uh, he had four wins above replacement for the Orioles in 2019 when it didn't matter. He stole 40 bases, and even after doing this, he was basically worth nothing to the league at large because when the Orioles tried to trade him on themselves before the 2020 season, uh, the Orioles basically ended up dumping him on the Miami Marlins and receiving a relief prospect, Easton Lucas, who is only of note for this show because Lucas has now since been traded to Oakland for pitcher Shintaro Fujinami, who hopefully will be able to bring his hard-throwing, relief, um, quality relief that he's had since the start of June to the Orioles. But, you know, I, I don't know about that as the time I'm reading this. Uh, Luis Ortiz was another twice traded pitching prospect as the Orioles got him again, just beware that guy. He was a former first round pick. He did have decent results at the time of the trade for Milwaukee's double a team, but he ended up having three games played for the Orioles. No command in those games. He washed out he has gone on to be a sort of okay reliever for the Philadelphia Phillies this season, five years later. Uh, nah. As for Carmona, he never got above a ball. So that brings us to our last trade, the Kevin Gossman trade. And honestly, it still kind of ticks me off because Gossman still had two years of Orioles team control left beyond the 2018 season. I would have really liked to see what the Elias pitching program ended up making of Gossman. Maybe he could have traded Gossman for something much better than what the Orioles ultimately got for Gossman from Atlanta. But then again, I thought the Orioles would be able to fix Dylan Bundy, and they were not able to do that. It didn't matter. So I don't know. Maybe Kevin Gossman would have been the same. I don't know. So the Gossman trade to Atlanta, it sent Kevin Gossman and Darren O'Day, who was basically an injured salary dump to Atlanta, and the Orioles then received pitcher Bruce Zimmerman, pitcher Evan Phillips, catcher Brett Cumberland, and infielder J.C. Encarnacion, as well as a significant amount of international bonus slot money. So Gossman, he was not having a good 2018 with a 97 ERA plus for the Orioles at the time of the trade. Basically, none of these guys were rated as prospects of note in the Atlanta system. 
it to me to this day seems like Duquette. It was almost like he just seized on players with some kind of not even real local connection. Like Bruce Zimmerman was born in Baltimore. So, okay, actual Maryland product. Evan Phillips was born in Salisbury and apparently grew up an Orioles fan. So, sure. Um, Brett Cumberland, well, that's the name of a city in Maryland. So, that's worth something, right? And no, no, none of these guys were worth anything to the Orioles. I am sorry to the Zimmerman fan club who gets mad every time I point out he's not a good pitcher. He's got a negative 0.4 war in 37 big league games. It doesn't seem like the 2023 Orioles value him very highly, if at all, although he is at least still on the 40-man roster. They haven't dumped him yet. Phillips really stunk here, although he has gone on to be good for Tampa Bay and now the Los Angeles Dodgers. Cumberland never made it. And as for J.C. Encarnacion, who you probably forgot about before I brought him up here, uh, well, he was on the York Revolution in independent baseball by age 23. So for the Orioles, he was worth not anything at all. And then there was the international money. So at the time, it looked like, wow, at the, at the end of that season, there were some, uh, I believe all of them were Cuban defectors who were going to be signing late. So there was Victor Victor Mesa and his brother Victor Mesa. There was also a pitcher named Sandy Gaston. And the Orioles signed none of these guys. The Mesa brothers went to the Marlins, and Gaston was signed by the Rays. And the thing about that is Victor Victor Mesa is now 27 years old. He still hasn't made the majors. His younger brother, Victor Mesa, now 21 in double-A ball. He's got kind of some whatever results. I don't know. Maybe he'll still be something. Gaston... Well, no one fails to throw strikes like Gaston because he's walked 32 batters in 28 and a third innings for the Rays high A affiliate this year. So as it ended up, none of these guys would have been worth signing. It would have at least been made the trade feel like it had a bit more validation if the Orioles had spent that money, but they didn't. So like my question for this trade specifically is, could Dan Duquette have gotten better prospects if he had not dumped Darren O'Day's salary on Atlanta in the trade. If there's one thing the rebuilding Orioles should have done, they should have just absorbed the salary, accepted it as a sunk cost if they thought it was. And O'Day did not uh, pitch again in 2018 after the trade and only pitched a handful of games for Atlanta in 2019 before its contract ran out. So they should have just eaten the money. And they should have gotten better prospects. Could they have done? I don't know. Maybe Atlanta would have not wanted to do that trade if they were not just uh, absorbing the money to give not as good prospects. And, you know, if they had not taken the international money, could they have gotten better prospects? Again, we'll never know. Um, Gossman, as it turned out, was not any good for Atlanta. They waived him, and then he went to the Reds, where he was not any good non-tendered, and then only then did he sign with the San Francisco Giants and start achieving what we all believed he could. So we're talking his third team after leaving the Orioles, and he was very good with the Giants. Now he's signed a free agent contract with the Blue Jays and is still rolling there, unfortunately, for everyone who wanted him, you know, to be a good pitcher for the Orioles. I feel like Dan Duquette honestly probably deserved to lose his job entirely because of this trade if he didn't deserve to lose it for other reasons, which of course he did. But that should have really been the last straw, and perhaps it was, because that one, you know, he should have left Gossman for the next guy and getting burning down a guy he didn't need to trade and then getting nothing for that was 
really now is frustrating, even if it's less frustrating now that the Orioles are good again. So like, okay, in this podcast episode, I have just mentioned a whole lot of names, most of whom are not even worth ever thinking about again after you listen to this. And of all the names I've mentioned, the number to ever play well for a good Orioles team is two. If you count the 2022 Orioles as a good Orioles team, which they did finish off playing well. And, you know, if you don't count 2022 because they only won 83 games, didn't make the playoffs right now, that number is zero to ever play well for a good Orioles team because Kramer is not good this year and Tate has not been healthy. So in summary, Dan Duquette, I award you no points and may God have mercy on your soul. I will be back with another episode next time. Right at this moment, I'm not sure when that will be, possibly July 31st, possibly August the 2nd. And then we will be looking at some of the rebuilding trades made by our current general manager, Mike Elias, since he arrived on that job. But that's all that I've got for for this time. So Good Morning Birdland is a Camden Cast production on the Fans First Sports Network. Until next time, go O's.